Today on Main Calling, pushback against DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The murder of George Floyd in 2020 prompted nationwide calls for racial justice. Soon after that, efforts to pay more attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion spread across American society. Companies, schools, institutions looking to do better at giving equal opportunities to people of all races, genders, sexual orientation, or religion. I'm Cindy Hahn. Today, we'll examine what exactly DEI means and how it's being implemented. And we'll discuss the forces behind the current backlash against DEI. Not only are some prominent individuals criticizing DEI efforts, leading companies are backing down on their early initiatives to support more diverse workplaces. What will it take to achieve the core goals of DEI? Main Calling is coming right up. Main Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org slash learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. Today, we are examining how diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, have become priorities in our society, but also why objections to DEI have grown recently. Joining me to talk about this are Judith Josiah Martin, faculty in the School of Social Work at the University of Maine. She's also a training consultant and a community advocate. Dustin Ward is president and founder of It Is Time. He's a racial equity and reconciliation advocate, a former pastor, and a select board member in New Gloucester. And Michael Cato is senior vice president and chief information officer at Bowdoin College. We invite you to join the conversation. Share your observations about how DEI has become a bigger emphasis or about the DEI backlash that's happening. Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org, post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. And Dustin, I wanted to ask you, because in preparing for the show, I realize there are people who are deeply involved with DEI, but then there are people who just don't know at all what it means. So you teach workshops on this, I know. So give us a basic explanation of what the acronym stands for, in what ways this has become a movement in the past few years? Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's good to be back. Um, one of the things that I try to do is I let a lot of my clients know that I'm presenting a framework in which I see it. And I think that's one thing, too, is we all use different language. Um, so I'll do the best to give you what I believe my framework is in, in moving forward in this work. I always start with two pillars, which is humanity and identity. We look at the fullness of a person, and then we look at the identity and what is someone bringing into the conversation as they self-identify. From those two pillars, I uh, break those three words down. Diversity really is about diverse lived experiences and how those experiences can have a voice at the table or the space uh, and the ability to make change in that space. Uh, it does nothing if you just bring in a lens, but give that voice no ability to make change within the system they're in. 
When I think about equity, equity is all about access to resources and the ability to eliminate barriers to those resources. I tell a lot of my clients it is not equality, which means we don't just give everything at the same uh, in the same way, but equity looks at the needs uh, of individuals and marginalized groups and those uh, needs in that moment. And then inclusion has uh, a couple pieces. First, it's all about how do I bring my full self into the space? Um, how can I feel fully reflected in all the spaces that I'm in? And then can I participate freely, openly, and honestly, and without judgment? And usually if I can get through a lot of that and sort of give a baseline and a base understanding of DEI and humanity identity, we then begin to sort of think about, okay, how does this begin to impact you as the individual and then the larger work of either the organization or the systems at play? So that's just my framework that I usually bring into a lot of my spaces. Great. Well, thanks for that explanation. Uh, Judith, I'm going to turn to you because you've worn so many hats in your career. I know clinical social worker and educator. You also directed multicultural student life at Maine, at UMaine. And um, I know you've also worked in the mental health field. So um, maybe given, you know, your wide perspective, what do you see as the central purpose of having diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in our society? Is it just to raise awareness so people understand those from different backgrounds? Or is it about hiring? You know, what is what what is DEI really all about? That's that's a wide question. Um, so I'm going to take I'm going to respond to it in a very general way. You know, I think the the biggest impact for our community would be using a DI framework to foster safe and more inclusive environments for all people to be able to have that sense of being heard and being seen and being welcomed into wherever they're wanting to have access to. And, you know, for a long time, there were um, skeptics about do we always do we do we have a responsibility do leaders do educators have a responsibility to ensure that everybody feels um seen heard and safe um in whether it's academic environments or work environments or any other service place but we do know that when an individual feel um is met um, with a sense of safety and belonging and inclusion, um, they they respond typically with um, um, higher levels of motivation, feeling um, mutual respect, um, and feeling that they can bring themselves truly into those spaces and places. And so for me, even when I, I step away from the general and look at it from a mental health point of view, um, people are most vulnerable when they are seeking mental health or healthcare services. You know, they're not te technically, um, usually they're not at their best. And so we want to have mental health and healthcare places um, that don't add additional burdens of stress or um, any burden of shame and guilt or any burden of you're not good enough or you, you don't you have to do something extra to merit favor to be to, to get our services. And so in those for, ex for example, in those milieu, um, DI has significant weight um, and um, provides opportunity for its workers 
those providing the, the services, its practitioners, to really ensure that those most vulnerable actually get um, care in the most um, um, ethically sound way, in the most empathic and compassionate way, when we are trained to actually hold space for all identities, no matter how people bring their expressions into those places. Okay, thanks. I, you did cover that broad question. Well, thank you. Um, Michael Cato, I know that um, your area of focus has been in IT and information technology. And I know you've emphasized the need for people of all different backgrounds to be in that field. Can you explain that? Why do you think DEI is important um, from your perspective? I appreciate the invitation, Cindy, and the time to be in the conversation today. Uh, so I'll start with a frame that I often offer. And I think it's even more um, important today. I consider myself a practitioner. Um, and it's interesting, Judith, you just used that word, right? I, I am one of those practitioners. I am not an expert in this content. Um, but it's been, I've led, my job has been to build and lead IT teams for over 20 years in a bunch of different settings across different states. And it, was, it wasn't until I was introduced to the DEI framework, I started to find the language for something I had already been experiencing. And the best example I found is that more diverse teams working in inclusive environments are better at solving complex problems. Mm -hmm. right? And that's, a, that's actually a, a particular language from Scott Page at the University of Michigan. He has a couple of books and he uses that language that for me, I found really, really helpful. Right. And it's and research can show you the specific reasons, because these diverse people will bring in their difference, differences of lived experience. But even if they all had literally the same degrees from the same institutions or the same um, academic preparation or, or whatever the situation is, their lived experiences are still going to shape the way that they solve problems, the way that they apply that learning. Um, and so if you can, can if you can create both, you can invite people in who've got different ways of navigating the world and you invite them into a space that is inclusive by design that we are seeking new ideas, that we want to hear from everyone, then as an organization, we'll be better at solving complex problems. And I argue that in IT, that's my job. At the end of the day, it's about solving problems. Um, but I think it's really important that you have to have both. If all you do is bring in people who are different and you haven't done the inclusion work, you're just going to make everybody mad, right? So the people who are already there are going to feel, why are these new people questioning everything we did, right? And the new people are going to come in with frustration because you hired me for my ideas, but you won't let me voice them. Or every time I voice them, you tell me that, oh, no, no, we tried that before. Or we don't do that here. Or you need to sit quietly for a few years until we will hear your ideas, right? Experiences that I suspect many of us have had in different situations. Um, and so I come to this work as a practitioner because I have discovered that it makes the teams that I'm responsible for much better at our jobs if we're able to make sure that we are hearing um, different ideas from different people over time. And, Has that and, answered what you're asking? Please. Go ahead, and I Yes, I Michael, I really like bringing in the language of the lived experience as a way to expand the concept of diversity, right? Because I think part of the angst around DEI is that we have whipped down um, the meaning to being, it's just about hiring people from this group and this group and this group. And we really narrow, we, we, it, that's just like the narrowest way of looking at this. But when we look at a workforce, when we look at a team that is allowed to uh, safely 
bring all of who they are to the workspace or to the care of other people, then look at the power that comes into the room, right? Look at the creativity that is possible. Look at the resources that we open the door to. And so I, I, I step a little bit away from the diversity into the inclusion lens, right? And, and that's why, you know, I'm a social worker, so I'm always going to come back to um, the empowerment and the safety of the voices in the room. And I think that's what DEI brings, helps us to, to take on in a more meaningful way. I think that's so good that you articulated this narrow definition, because I did want to get to what we're talking about today that's in the news is this backlash to DEI. And I think that's connected to what you just said, Judith, in that the backlash tends to focus very much on just race and in within race, just black and white. Right. So um, I, I'm, I'm going to cite, in fact, you know, Elon Musk, I think, is one of the best examples right now of where we heard the more kind of extreme backlash to DEI. And he's written things like DEI is just another word for racism. And he, he calls it immoral and illegal. So, um, Dustin, I wonder if you can comment on that point of view and where that's coming from you know why why is sort of the most vocal uh, opposition to dei citing it as a form of racism uh first issue is that when we started this racial reckoning it was specifically to focus on the atrocity that we saw in 2020 and so we cannot move away from recognizing that the reason we're even here is because we collectively witnessed the death uh, of Mr. George Floyd, not to mention the many deaths we have seen up until that point. I get a lot of my clients to say, let's sit in that that moment for, for a second. Our attempt, and that's why I started racial equity, our attempt was to focus on black and brown individuals and the way in which racism had impacted our lives fully, both within the systems that, that were created through a white lens and also the microaggressions we were experiencing. What happens is because black and brown members raise their hand and say, we have been discriminated for far too long, other marginalized groups have also been included in that and said, yeah, we're being discriminated. So DEI took on a larger umbrella. So we didn't have a clear definition of the narrow view that we're talking about right now. Um, we're trying to associate it with, with one thing and it was actually a larger umbrella. The backlash I think is because there's uh, a few things. One is this fear. There's this fear of being blamed and guilted into the reasons why we're at this point. And I think that after the last three years, some white individuals have felt like there's been too much blame and shame put on them. And all we're asking is let's be held accountable for the way in which we approach these situations, for the things we say and the way we act. And I think you're starting to see that backlash as a fear of I don't want to be blamed anymore for the ills of the world. Um, I think that's part of it. I also think that what we're describing is we have not been using a, a clear common language. And that's why we always start with terminology. That's why you asked me to start with terminology, because we still are not hearing it on a common uh, common language. And I think we need to begin to start doing that and be very clear about the universal, universal understanding of what is DEI, what is racial equity, and what is anti-racism? Because they all are very separate things with very separate processes and ways we get to the goals we want to reach. So I think a comment like that is just steeped in both fear and misunderstanding and our inability to clearly come to key terms um, and universally speak the same language. Michael, can you add to that idea of what Dust Dustin just said, that the term itself, DEI, um, maybe there are misconceptions about what it means, and that's where some of the backlash is coming from? 
I think I definitely agree with that. I'd also take us back quite a ways, right? I think that the idea of a backlash isn't new. I was reading an article this morning in the Atlantic. They were talking about the memorial to the civil the Civil War memorial at Yale University. And the article is actually really interesting because it goes into the detail that the the um the builders, the, the institutional administrators chose not to commemorate um the reason for the, the why the Civil War was fought in the first place. So nothing in the memorial says anything about slavery. And the real focus was about reconciliation. How do we reconcile our northern and southern students, our northern and southern community? And that was the focus. And this is just a few years after the Civil War, right? So this is, isn't new that once you get to the core issue when it comes to race, we are deeply uncomfortable as a society, right? And that's where I definitely agree with Dustin on a number of fronts. But the idea of once we got to the issue of race, that's when people get really uncomfortable. I put myself in it, right? It's a deeply uncomfortable set of conversations that we have never succeeded in having. And, and, and when we make progress, there's always a backlash, right? We've gone through this cycle many, many times. So that part's not new. Um, and what I find frustrating, to be honest, when we have those conversations about diversity now, is many of the people who are leading the charge on the backlash, that this is racism, the language that you quoted from Elon Musk and others, but they're also quick to say, well, we need to have more political diversity, right? We need to have my voice in the room. We need to have more conservatives of higher ed institutions, all of which I agree with. And that broader framework that we are talking, that we started with, right? That this, that when we say diversity, we're talking about lived experience, right? Judith, you were playing, you were talking about that as well, right? This really could be a much more inclusive framing. But once we also do the work that we need to do to talk about race, that's when a lot of people get really uncomfortable and want the whole thing to stop. Such good points. Thank you, Michael. We do need to take a quick break right now. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the DEI backlash that we're seeing. Give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. What does DEI look like in companies and institutions in Maine? And why do some criticize DEI initiatives? My guests are Dustin Ward, founder of It Is Time, a former pastor. He educates people and leads workshops about racial equity. Michael Cato is senior VP and chief information officer at Bowdoin College. And Judith Josiah Martin is a social work educator with the University of Maine, as well as a consultant, a speaker, and community advocate. Join the conversation. What are your thoughts about the need to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion and awareness? Email us at talk at mainpublic.org or comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call 1-800-399-3566. Judith, Michael mentioned um, the fact that talking about race, it just makes people uncomfortable, but we're, we're going to lean in today <laughs> on that on that aspect. And I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, again, about this backlash. Elon Musk, as I said, his position represents a more extreme anti-DEI stance, but the reason it resonates with some people who may not be stating it quite as antagonistically as he does is that they do interpret DEI as a movement that essentially discriminates against those who are white, particularly white males, that it's it's making efforts to push people out, not get hired and, you know, preferentially hire someone who is not white or not male. So, you know, talk about that, that that's actually, you know, a segment of our population who that's what they see DEI as and that's what they fear. 
Well, it's you're right on the money that talks about race is still something we're learning how to do. Um, We're still in our infancy of having language and um, uh, sense of safety to approach these topics because they're so um, heavily laden with people's lived experiences and emotions. It's, it's a strong emotional content. There's there's political stuff that's behind it. There are family legacies. And so fear is a huge part of it. And I would add what makes, when, when we think of DEI and we only look at it through a racial lens, the other thing that makes it uncomfortable and might be a part of the backlash is because some people might feel a sense of loss of control or anonymity or power, right? Um, Some people might be thinking that you're disrupting the traditional um, power or um, the traditional ways of being and doing. Um, There's a sense of threat there. And um, it's a normal psychological thing is that when I feel fear, anxiety, or threat, what do I do? I put up my dukes, I defend. Right. And I do it naturally. It's not like people, you know, most people don't say, oh, my gosh, D.I.O. Well, you know, that's not really needed. What they feel first is a sense of somebody's coming at me or to take something from me. And so they get defensive. And once you can help them to put down the defense and just think a little bit about the broader context of what we're trying to get at, People begin to open up just a little bit more. And I think one of the issues that happened in 2020 when we witnessed the um, killing of George Floyd and then this, the Black Lives Matter and then this huge massive swell into DEI initiatives across the country, um, there, was seldom, there, was, there was not an incubator for helping people to transition from out over here in the cold into where we wanted them to be. It's, it's all of a sudden we just, we got it here and we're going to do this by hook or crook. And 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 we, we thought that the goodwill of the populace would carry the movement forward. But we, we, we fail to appreciate the psychology of the, of the populace. And so I think now we got to step back as leaders, as advocates, and do some education, do some helping people to, to have the language and create spaces for just having these conversations and then using a collective voice to create the inclusion and initiatives that are needed, as opposed to it only coming from very specialized. You know, we're going to hire a DEI person who's going to come in and do this thing for us. Actually, that might have been our mistake as DEI um, people and, and and as people who were invested this in this process, you know, we were going for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we might have excluded the very people who needed to be a part of the conversation and being a part of the designing of these initiatives. So that, that's my initial response to that. That's in, that's interesting. So, Dustin or Michael, do you think um, that too much, too fast was you know part of the reason for some backlash? I mean, Michael, you said there's always pushback. There's always backlash to movements. So do you agree with Judith's take on that part of it? I, I take a point. I, I do think that there's um, there with any mass movement, right? There's always ways that you can improve what you're doing, right? And and um, but again, because I take the historical context of the backlash, I remember having conversations in 2020 with colleagues 
we knew the backlash was coming, right? We knew there's no way that, you know, after all these hundreds of years, you know, it's all going to pivot in 18 months. It's just not going to happen, right? So we, many of us were on it, us, I mean, those who care about this work and have been doing this work previously, whatever, even whether we use that language or not, right? We're aware that there was going to be pushback. And the question was, what would it look like? And I'll be I'll be honest, I could not have anticipated it showing up in state legislatures as quickly as it has. Right. That that part has genuinely surprised me. So finding ways to bring more people in early. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, and I at the same time acknowledge that because the backlash has been a historical fact and has happened so many times, um, I found myself questioning in 2020. Well, how much progress can we make? before the backlash kicks in, right? There, there was a little, <laughs> at least for me, there was a little bit of strategy in there and that, yes, I could I could be much more gentle and see if, uh, gentle in a sense of, of not pushing as hard and see if that might make people more open to it. And you do some of that, but you also realize the backlash is still going to happen. So I think in some cases, at least for myself personally, made I made some choices to, to be more vocal in places respectfully, but still more vocal than perhaps I would have been previously because, I, you know, this was an opening to try to make some more progress. And, and so I own that. And can you just circle back? You said that it's reached the point of state legislators, legislatures doing something. So just explain that. Yeah, there's um, I think the last one I saw was the state of Utah last week. Um, the state has banned diversity programs across public entities, including public higher education institutions. Um, Florida has done it. I believe South Carolina is debating one. Um, it, it is, and I, I think it's up to six. I don't remember the full list of all the states. I can go back and check. Um, but what that's doing is actually telling public institutions, which is what my background was in before I came to um, private institutions, that they cannot have diversity inclusion office, offices, that they can't do inclusion trainings, right? That they can't use diversity statements. And there's some specific pieces that I don't think the shifting away from will be that significant, but dismantling your inclusion offices, doing away with your resource centers, your women's resource center or your LGBTQ resource center, that's going to have a direct impact at students being successful in those institutions. And that's the part that state legislatures, I don't think either they don't know or they don't believe or they don't care about what that's going to do. Like these centers were created to create, uh, you know, and Judith, you used this language of safety earlier, right? That emotional safety is a really big deal. It is yeah. really hard to, to thrive academically if I'm worried about whether I belong here or not, because I keep getting these sometimes subtle, sometimes overt messages that I don't have a place here, right? And then in, in asking me, expecting me to academically be successful, if I do it, it's a Herculean effort, right? Because I'm doing that as well as just trying to hold my place here. So that's what caused the, or that led to the creation of these centers that are being dismantled right now. That's what I was referring to, Cindy. Sure, and you know that, I, I, I want to talk more about that. Uh, I wanted to get to a caller uh, before, you know, we need to go to another break later. So um, let's go to Ethan calling from Saco. Go ahead, Ethan. Hi there, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. Hi. Hi. Yes. Thanks for taking my call. I think on the right, what I see happening is that that for the reason for the for the pushback is that we see the the DEI stuff um, as a kind of Bolshevik or Bolshevism, and I was listening to you guys talking, and I hear the terms like collectivism 
and the, you know, community stuff. Uh, none of us on the right are racist, or maybe some are, maybe, but uh, I don't see this as a. I, I, th- there's a the threat thing is real. We feel like it's anti-white, and you you know the limousine limousine liberals who work in academia are. You, you just said yourself you're taking another away around it. Like you keep coming back at this aspect of trying to. Um, the the whole left wing, it, it, it just feels so undermining of our values, and you know, it just okay. Very Ethan, let's let's give them a chance to respond. Thank you. So, um, Dustin, I'll turn to you. You know, we were trying to get at this earlier um, when I was saying there are people who who do believe that DEI is discriminating against white people in America. So, um, I think Ethan is expressing that frustration. Um, what what can you say to what his points were? Well, first, I want to say thank you to Ethan for calling up and having the the courage and ability to sort of voice that opinion. I think what we're trying to say is that that is welcome. For me, my line is always when we begin to dehumanize other groups and erase people's identity, we have an issue with that. Uh, but I don't think that's where he was going. I think what he's feeling, and it's interesting that we're having a conversation about diverse lived experiences, people being included, um, we just started talking about race, and all of a sudden you sort of felt the anger um, with that was rising up of, wait, are, we're being anti-white. And I don't think that's what we're trying to communicate. Um, we're trying to say that our community, uh, as we identify as black and brown individuals, has been feeling as if that we are being overlooked, that systems have been created against us, and that we need space to be able to discuss the things that have, and the big word I have is traumatized. We have, and, and I think Judith had mentioned, there's, there's a psychology to this. Um, Mm -hmm. So much of this is trauma work. And what we have not discussed is the fact that this happened in a time of COVID as well. And we are trying to rush back to pre-pandemic life. So we have the ability to look and take reflective um, self-care for two and a half years while the, the world was shut down. And then things started to pick up. We never processed our anger. We never processed these issues. We just tried to jump back into pre-pandemic. Um, And I think Ethan left off on a very key word that I think we need to collectively have uh, as a country and as individuals in this space. He said, what are the values? I think that'd be a great conversation. What do we value? What do we collectively value? What's the commonality of values? Because the group sitting right here, we value um, safe workspaces. We value um, having our identity not attacked. We value uh, all those things. I think those are probably common to what Ethan's feeling. Hey, I, I don't want to be attacked. Uh, I want a safe space. I would agree. And that's why I start on humanity identity. The moment we begin to dehumanize each other and treat each other as if we are not human, we can justify violence against one another. That's where we have to be, to hold ourselves accountable. Absolutely. Judith, go ahead, Judith. You you wanted to say something no, too. I'm just nodding um, over here because I'm absolutely agreeing with Dustin that Part of the inclusion and the equity speaks to value, right? People want everybody, not just white or black or brown. Everybody wants to know that they have value and that their lived experience adds to the workplace, adds to an educational platform. And we have to own in, in our country, that certain groups and, and um, groups of people in our society didn't get that message that they're, that they're showing up was of value. 
And part of what DEI is about is making sure that our organizations, our companies, our educational systems are you are are standing firmly on the, the value of all human lives, right? The value of everybody's lived experience, none more than the other. And it's pushing us to do a little bit more about evening out that. That's the equity part, right? Um, and if you have if you have another group, um, let's say the LGBTQ um, folks who have been targeted on academic um, campuses, um, specifically young um, young adults who face all kinds of backlash just to seek an education. And yet we say as a country, we value education for all. I, I, DEI stuff simply uh, and, and programs and having resource centers for those individuals simply say, we value you here and we're gonna create a safe space for you. It's not an exclusion, it's a bringing in of and adding to who is already there who has already always been safe there, right? And so adding that to the mix, that, that's that's how I see about it. And I, I appreciate um, Ethan bringing this to us because it is part of just being able to air this and have these conversations without saying, he's not wrong. He, he's he, the, the idea of value and our collective values is important to talk about. Yes, thank you, Ethan, for calling. We do need to go to a break now, and our phone number is 1-800-399-3566. We'll go to Christopher after the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. We are talking about DEI, what it really looks like, and why some are pushing back against efforts to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion in our society. Joining me are Michael Cato with Bowdoin College, Judith Josiah Martin with University of Maine, and Dustin Ward with It Is Time. Share your comments and questions. What are your experiences with DEI? Email us at talk at mainepublic.org. You can also post on Facebook or Instagram, or you can call 1-800-399-3566. And joining us on the line right now is Christopher calling from Old Orchard Beach. Hi, Christopher. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Great show. So I'm all for DEI inclusion awareness. I think that it's important that we talk about it, that people open their eyes to the fact. But I think the pendulum is maybe has swung too far where there's co corporations that have mandates. You know, half, you know, 10% of the population, uh, the workers need to be Hispanic or whatever it might be. I totally do not agree with that. I think you hire the best and brightest for the position, regardless of the situation, their race, their uh, sexual orientation. If you do that and you hire the best and brightest, then you have the best outcomes as far as moving the organization forward. And I feel like this DEI initiative is actually pushing the organizations backwards. For every step that we get forward, we end up going backwards by meeting mandates. So I'm not for it. I agree with the awareness. Just a oh. comment. Okay, no, thanks for sharing your perspective, Christopher. Michael, again, um, I think a fairly common uh, point that people try to make out there. So um, what would you say to Christopher about that? Well, first, I'd say again, I really appreciate that Christopher called in and offered, uh, candidly offered his perspective on it. it. It is the question I get perhaps quite most often in, in my conversation in the last 20 years of doing this, right? 
that um, and the frame I often get is, you know, why would we do this work in hiring when I should just be hiring the best candidate? My job is to review all the candidates I have in front of me and objectively hire the best candidate. And I've always challenged that with, well, what do we mean by best? Because if all I'm doing is evaluating those 10 candidates in front of me and seeing which of them uh, might be the strongest for the, the particular skills I'm looking for, but I'm ignoring what they might bring unique to the team that I already have, I'm missing something, right? But so often that's all we're doing. We're just looking at these 10 people, who's the best one here? And worse, we're ignoring the natural human biases and all biases are shortcuts. That's all it is, right? We all have them. There's just too much information for our brains to process consciously. So we develop shortcuts to, to navigate our way through the world. But those shortcuts also then lead us to make decisions about those candidates that really are not objective, even though we think they are, right? And so really well-designed DEI programs allow us to be, to challenge those biases and to really be much clearer at the outset, what are the skills that we need for this next hire? What are the skills we already have in our organization? And what are the perspectives that might push us into areas we need to go? And that might allow us to, and that might cause us to try to look for a different candidate than we would do otherwise. And would allow us to completely flip on its ear that idea of hiring for fit, which has been one of the, I think, most um, challenging aspects to unwind. Because fit means I'm going to bring someone in who makes me feel comfortable. And while that's great if that's what I'm seeking, but if I'm seeking excellence, excellence might mean I need to push us in another direction, right? We need to bring in someone who's worked in a different type of environment, and they might think about things differently than we have in the past. You know, so and the part that I find amusing, the best comparison I've been given is that competitive um, teams like team environments have done this, still do this. I've done this forever. But right? you don't just go for who's the best kicker among the kickers that are there. You're looking for who's the person who will bring something new to the organization, bring something new to the team that I'm trying to recruit. But when it comes to corporations, we generally don't think that way until many of us got introduced to it through the through these DEI frameworks. So that, that's what I would offer is that it's, it is really an attempt to move us into new areas to allow our organizations to be better by hiring the candidates that will allow us to move in new directions. Thanks for that answer, Michael. So you're basically saying, you know, when someone says, why not hire the most qualified candidate, the best candidate, that's a subjective thing, right? There's no measure. There's no Absolutely. quantitative measure for what best means. And if I do, if I just look for best, ignoring what I already have and what this person could bring uniquely in, I'm missing something. So it's both of those pieces. Okay, great. Um, Judith, did you want to say something else about that too? Okay, we're good. Well, <laughs> I, I, I would, I would just say that <clears throat> when you can specifically say that that means ten Latinos, you're missing the point of what Michael is saying. Because a, a leader who is looking to add talent can't just say that that talent is going to be in the body of three black people and two gay people. That is the reductionist view of DEI, right? And that's what I think Chris is talking about. Um, but and I am totally supporting what Michael is saying is that D, the DEI lens is supposed to get us out of just looking at these narrow bests and looking at could my could the organization's definition be itself restrictive and opening that lens to a different way of assessing talent. That's diversity. That's inclusion. As simple as that. It's not a numbers game. 
So this brings up to me the Supreme Court ruling ruling last year that ended affirmative action in college admissions. It's a little slightly a different um, conversation than DEI, but it's clearly very related because with that climate now, affirmative action being, you know, ended for college admissions, then a lot of companies are backing out of DEI initiatives because they're saying, well, we don't want to have quotas. You know, we don't want to... Um, we don't want to basic we're following suit and not having affirmative action here so they started eliminating things like having a person working on dei hiring um dustin is this part of this this broad pendulum swinging <laughs> in that direction i think it's um back to what we talked about how we understand terms and i think michael has brought a beautiful way of which we need to assess um hiring uh, from a diverse lived experience lens. Um, again, what is best? Affirmative action looked at the current systems of that time because best was based on seniority and education and far too often the systems that were created actually redlined or caused many of the school systems that would create better opportunities were swayed for one group and not another. So affirmative action was looking at systems that allowed a, a fix of the systems that had been created um, for one group. That was the bias. What, what we're saying and where I think the pendulum is actually swinging is how do we reassess our hiring practices to actually use a DEI lens to include diverse lived experiences as part of what is best, where the systems also need to change, but yet the way in which we hire and the way in which we see individuals that come into our companies as completely different as we used to. That may mean shifting our barriers and our requirements. Um, maybe we are asking for PhDs and we need to, to lower that or reshift that. Uh, years of experience. Um, I think the other thing that I think is really uh, exciting here is we are shifting into a, a, a space where we talk about the economics of DEI. Uh, Michael's alluding to it, how DEI actually brings productivity into the organization. If that is a case and we have numbers to back that, how can we look at people we hire through that lens that says, um, let me bring you in into this inclusive space in a lens that will help us be even more productive because you're bringing in a new lens to, to the organization. So I think it's just a conversation of how are we reshifting how we think about things. Um, in an ideal world, we would hire best and brightest, but this is not an ideal world. Um, and that means we need to rethink about what we're doing. It's interesting. All three of you have taken this and really emphasized the practical aspects. You know, it's not it's not this sort of preachy moralistic thing. It's that it it's there's a practical benefit to um, to opening opening the doors to more people. Let's go to um, Graham calling from Bodenham. Hi, Graham. You're on the air. Hey there. Thanks so much. Um, I just want to start with uh, first a lived experience story, and then um, and then I've got a question. So uh, I check all the boxes of every kind of privilege that one could have in this country. I am a, you know, cis white male who's college educated. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I got hired at a new position right at the very start of the pandemic when everything got shut down. Our eyes have kind of started, or at least my own have kind of started to be opened up to some of these more issues of systemic racism and whatnot, um, amongst other kinds of inequalities as well. Um, and so when I was hired, I there was a very odd uh, confluence of emotions that I, I felt um, because Michael hired me. Wow. <laughs> And Michael so, Cato. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought that was you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but so but I call in to say that one first off um, that that uh, when when the panel here is is talking about you know DEI, it really is inclusive. It's not anti one or the other. And apparently, I checked the right person box. Um, but the the question that I have is that um, I've been reading through quite slowly because it's dense uh, this uh, this new anthropology book um, called a, a, uh, The Dawn of Everything by David uh, Graber and Wenbrow. And one of the things that um, that they're arguing is that um, more or less from the beginning of human society, as we could call it, um, one of the primary motivating factors is differentiation, that we don't do that because those people who are nearby us do it, right? That, you know, as, as a case in point, uh, Native American tribes in the California region were hunter-gatherers. They were not agriculturists. It's not because they didn't know about it. In fact, um, they had neighbors who they were quite familiar with who were growing maize and, and the like, and they chose not to because it was a cultural identity for them. That being the case, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on how do we, we can't, it doesn't seem like we can rationalize uh, change when it comes to convincing people of, of the need for these sorts of movements. How do we get below or beyond or even above that, that, amygdala response to, uh, uh, yeah. to to these issues. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for your question, Graham. And Michael, since you know Graham, I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the place that my mind goes is something that you just, as we you were taking the call, uh, pointed out that we were talking about the practical. What's the practical benefit to all of us to do this work? Right. And, and I think that the, the moral frame, not incorrect, but I think it does not necessarily serve us as well to bring more people into the conversation. And, and there's there's a myriad of practical examples for how um, the work of inclusion benefits everyone. Uh, one of my favorite examples is curb cuts on the sidewalk, right, that we put them in first when the push to accessibility. But now if you're pushing a stroller or a shopping cart, right, it makes it easier for you to get up on that sidewalk. So it benefits everyone who uh, in ways that we just didn't think of at the time that we built the sidewalks in the first place. It's principles like that. It really can benefit us more broadly. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Thank you. And thanks for calling, Graham. Um, I did want to bring up another aspect of the criticisms of DEI that are kind of on the flip side, just that um, when all these initiatives started, a lot of organizations were really eager to implement some sort of DEI, um, but the concerns were they weren't doing it right. You know, it was window dressing. It was performative. You know, a company could just do a training workshop or, you know, um, show a film or something and, and then feel like they were done. So, um, Judith, can you just, you know, expand on that, too? Is that there, are, there are other ways in which DEI, there's a backlash for other reasons. Uh, can I feel that to Dustin for a moment? Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> sure, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I think you're right. So one of the other issues that that um, I have noticed over the last few years is there were not a clear set of goals as to where organizations were going. They weren't very clear. They they the goal was always the DEI statement, and 
they were unsure of how to implement it. So the first thing that I usually teach is you have to have some of the education to give you an understanding of how to implement. And then you have to have an honest conversation about how would you know something's changed? Talking about casting a vision and goal setting that is through a DEI lens, just putting a statement up, the hope is that the goodwill will take over and we'll just all, all be much better. And that's not the case. So you've got to have some goal setting and vision planning. I do a lot of that with clients is think about a year, three years, five years from now, what can you see? And then also then how do you set goals so that you have a trajectory? Um, I think because we didn't set clear goals, we didn't have a good vision and then we didn't know what to change. And sometimes that means we need to, to lift under the rocks and look under our systems that we've had for so long. I call them some traditional cows and just say, how do we get, get rid of them or move on from them? Um, and I think another key thing is um, we have got to be able to celebrate our victories. Um, where have we done it right? And then say, okay, how do we keep moving it forward? Because what I'm starting to sense is people are getting weary. They're getting weary because they're not seeing enough action or we don't have actionable goals. So as you celebrate victories along the way, it can move you along a journey. And really, if we see it as more of a journey um, and not just, well, we got to the DEI statement, we're good, pack up shop and move on. That's why a lot of the work I do with my clients is years long. It is not just a couple of training sessions. The training yeah. sessions are an entry point um, where I can sort of feel and understand where people are at. Um, but from there, it's really surgical. It's digging into those policies, programs, systems and saying what can change and how do we get there? So, Judith, I'm putting you back on the spot for 30 seconds. <laughs> Wrap up from what du what Dustin said. Right. And I think, um, you know, the we, you know, the organizations, uh, academics, you know, we had diversity officers, whatever. And I, th I thought that we got to a place where uh, we're almost doing it on the lens of it's nice to have somebody to drive the effort, you know, checkbox, right? But we actually didn't put a structure behind it. We, we had a council, DI council, we had DI teams, and we sort of just put them out there, create something for us to move this forward. It wasn't like, so what's the mandate? What, what's the organizational vision of where the organization wants to go? And how does inclusion and equity further the mission of the organization. You see what I'm saying? It's an integrated approach. It's not an add-on or a standalone kind of thing. That's one of the mistakes I think that we that we have made. And we're pulling back, but I'm afraid that if we take we pull back too far, we will lose the growth that we actually did gain in 2022, 23, and where we are today. And okay. so we're going to, we're going to wrap up to this. I know that obviously lots of work to be done, lots to talk about. We need Thank another you. hour. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for joining us today. Judith Josiah Martin is with University of Maine. Dustin Ward is with It Is Time and Michael Cato with Bowdoin College. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy and our theme song was composed by Mike Jandro. I'm Cindy Hahn and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.